Uh, I, shared, I shared in my blurb uh, this week that for me, Christmas is full of a lot of warm fuzzies. Uh, it's full of football, it's full of uh, walking around Christmas lights, a lot of presents, Christmas trees, just a lot of good stuff. Uh, especially my grandma's English toffee. Uh, mom, my mom pointed that out. That was awesome. English toffee is amazing. Um, but uh, in our text, as you're going to see in a little bit, uh, it's not a lot of warm fuzzies. There's trouble uh, in Jerusalem. And it just caused me to ponder, like, why, why trouble? Like, what could bring trouble? Like, if you haven't seen Talladega Nights, you won't get this. But what could sweet baby Jesus, skittle, eight pounds, six ounce, sweet baby Jesus, cause so much trouble? If you haven't seen the movie, go see it. It's fantastic. Uh, what, why could he cause so much trouble? I mean, he looks so sweet, innocent, you know, in that manger scene. And we come with our, you know, oh, it warms our hearts. It's so good. And that is all so good. But I've been wrestling with why trouble? Uh, so I'm going to welcome up uh, two people to read our texts. Uh, and these are my own Mary and Joseph in my life, my mom and my dad. Uh, so it's a special treat to have them here today. So come on up and... Lord knows what all they've had to do to keep me alive. So, like the time I got that staph infection playing tennis with my mom. That's for another time. My dad, that was right before my senior year and uh, before I got my scholarship for football. So, that would have been really bad. My mom allowed uh, me to get a staph infection. So, <laughs> yeah, that's a good leading, right? You can see the trouble that Herod was under, too. Yeah, I thought you'd call us up because we make so much trouble in your life. Oh, no. So I thought that was an appropriate uh, person to talk about trouble. We'll be in the, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, so open up your Bible, pull it up on your phone, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. Okay, I'm reading out of the New American Standard Version, um, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And he gathered together all the chief priests and the scribes and the people, and began to inquire of them, Where is the Christ who was to be born? And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And behold, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search of the child. And when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. And having heard the king, they went their way, and lo, the star that they had been seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they came into the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they presented him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. I'm reading out of the NIV, verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream 
Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. Verse 18, A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Thank you. The word of the Lord. So what could cause so much trouble on Christmas, right? I mean, again, we're not talking about uh, snowstorm and so your kids can't come back from college, even though that would be a lot of trouble and that would be unfortunate. Uh, we're also not talking about you didn't get the gift that you, did, that you put on your wish list, okay? Even though that would be trouble, too, for some people. Uh, or we're not talking about maybe, like, you know, the expectation that you have that doesn't get fulfilled, okay? Even though, again, not to soften that because that could cause trouble. But this is a deep-seated trouble. In fact, the Greek word here is reference to terror. It's this trouble of, like, oh, my gosh, the world is coming apart as I know it. I'm terrified. It's a revolt. That's the word that is used here to describe the trouble that Herod and all of Jerusalem, apparently, are experiencing with the news of Jesus. Uh, I've never felt that before. I don't know. Maybe some of you have felt that way about Christmas, but I never have. Uh, and so why, why this trouble? Oh, Herod. There should be a song about that. Oh, Herod, why are you so troubled? You know, uh, Jasmine, maybe you can something up about that. Christmas play, huh, Gary? In the Christmas play? Yeah. Uh, so I want to dive in. <laughs> Gary's like, what? That's why be sharp. Pay attention. Uh, that's why uh, I want to dive into that and experience why so troubled. And what I want to get into is some of the contextual realities of the day, some of the historical, um, cultural context that hopefully can shed some light on this. And then I want to move to look at Mary and Joseph and the Magi to show how they respond. Um, because what we're going to see is Mary and Joseph and the, and the wise men were at risk by this birth, the birth of, of Jesus. There was risk to them. There was a sense of trouble going on. But they, the way they responded and the way the path they chose to, to Jesus, right, um, and for Jesus is so different. And I think it offers us a paradigm uh, for our lives. So let's, let's jump in here. Um, it, it is a joy, by the way, to, to be a pastor at this church. It is such a gift. And to study God's word, it really, it's alive and active. And, man, just the nuances of the text that we get to dive into and, and see and learn uh, is really special. And I hope um, my sermon is a, gift, is a gift to you this morning. I think a good sermon is always a gift. So I hope that um, is a gift for you. So let's start with some of these little details that are so important, can shed so much light on what is going on here. Right, right away, here in verse 2. Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? Some translations say the newborn king of the Jews. 
Now, we need to stop right there for a second. What's the difference between a king and a, maybe like Herod, and a newborn king? See, now, we, look, we think about titleage, or we think about um, sense of authority, or who's giving him this title. So Herod, you get a little some background on Herod if you haven't read Josephus. So I don't know how many people read Josephus. I know James has, but, uh, and Todd and Bill. But Josephus was a historian and gives us a background on how Herod became king uh, in Judea and earned a title, king of the Jews, the Jews being those in Judea. And uh, see, Herod earned his title. Herod earned it through negotiating uh, his way around the system of the day, right? Leveraging relationships, playing the power figures. Uh, he was a governor up in Galilee at one time. And as Josephus writes, he was actually really well liked because he was able to raise taxes, which is revenue for the empire, Rome. And he was able to squash any rebellion and keep the peace. That's what you needed to establish a good empire, right? You need money and you need peace. Uh, and so Herod was able to do this. So he earned his, he was on the nice list for Caesar, right? Not the naughty list, the nice list for Caesar. And uh, so he worked his way up and then a position opened up. He was able to get in and Mark Antony, you guys remember Mark Antony? Cleopatra? Mark Antony and Octavius, who was later become Caesar, they gave him the title king of Judea and put him in charge of of Jerusalem and the surrounding territory. So he earned his way. He worked hard, right? He made sacrifices. Maybe he had to make compromises. He did things in order to establish himself as king of the Jews. Now he gets word that a newborn king is here. A newborn. Where does a newborn, how does a newborn earn the title king? Unless it's one from God. It's a divine title. See, What's interesting here is back, this is why the genealogy of Matthew is so important. Matthew starts in Genesis, uh, Matthew chapter 1, which, by the way, it says a genealogy of Jesus, or it's actually a genesis of Jesus. It's like this new birth. It's a new story of what God is doing. It's hearkening on that creation language of what God is up to now in Jesus, and it traces all his lineage all the way from Abraham and David, all the way through to, to Joseph and then to Jesus. So we see David's place, or sorry, Jesus' place as king comes not from earning it, but from, from God saying, you are king. Uh, I really wrestle with this because I like to earn things. And so, um, you know, like as a starting quarterback, I would like, man, you, you work it. Like you're the best one, you earn it. And then if a coach says, you know what, I'm not going to start you, Matt. I'm going to put this other guy in because I just like him better. What? Come on, coach, you can't do that. I'm the better one. Like, I'm the better quarterback, you know. I'm the coach. I get to do what I want to do, right? Have you ever felt that way before in life? It's like, it's almost like you earn something, but then somebody else moves in last minute and takes your place. It's like, ah, man. So, like, Herod's like, man, this newborn king of the Jews, something's up here. So you can see the sense of like anxiety and maybe that sense of insecurity that Herod would feel towards a newborn king of the Jews. Now, also, did you notice the question that the Magi asked Herod and then Herod's question to the scribes and, and the chief priest? They're different questions, actually. So look at there, you guys, at your text. Look in the Bible there. It says, when, uh, it says for where is a child who has been born king of the Jews... Then in verse, and that's in uh, verse 2. In verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was frightened or troubled. All of Jerusalem with him. In verse 4, calling together the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired to them where the Messiah was to be born. That's different. 
Where is the Messiah to be born, not the king of the Jews? Now, Messiah, the, the, the anointed one, can, can fill in for king, King Jesus, but there's different connotations. The Messiah is God's anointed, God's chosen, God's it's divine purpose. It's something's coming through that's divinely orchestrated. See, Herod had a title king. He earned it, but God was not in his kingdom. This is the Messiah. But what's interesting now is that Herod, you can see Herod's troubling. He's like, wait, maybe something's up here. Maybe God's up to something that I don't know about, and that's threatening to me, that the Messiah actually might be here. And if the Messiah is here, that's bad news for me and my kingdom and what I want to do, my regime. And so I need to do something about this. I need to respond. So, of course, then he calls uh, together, where is this Messiah to be born? And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. And so then Herod kind of plays the political game, a game he knows very well, how to keep himself alive, how to keep his power. And so he says, oh, yes, I want to worship him. And so go on, go off, wise men, worship him. And when you find him, let me know so I, too, may come and pay homage. Uh, and as we see later, he was not willing to pay him homage. He really wanted to kill the baby to secure himself. But the point is that Herod was willing to do whatever it took to keep his position. Uh, have you ever felt that before? That when there's something threatening to you, that it's almost like you're feeling the temptation to do whatever it takes to keep your security in where your identity is? Uh, and I think, you know, in some, in some cultural components, we even honor people who are willing to go above and beyond to do whatever it takes to get the job done, right? To, to show their, their loyalty and their allegiance uh, to the institution or to the company. Uh, they're willing to risk and sacrifices and even hurt people to do that. Um, and I think about Herod's identity here and being one on performance and one about what's able to accomplish. And I think about uh, a Catholic priest that I, I like to uh, read and listen to named Richard Rohr who talks about the two selves, the, the false self and the true self. And the false self is the self that's always defensive. It's the self that's always insecure. It's the self that always has to protect and defend who you think you are or your place in the world and your image and your status. That's the false self because the true self is that self that God speaks to you and says, I love you. You are my beloved son and daughter no matter what. No matter what you accomplish, no matter what people say about you, no matter how many likes on Instagram you have, I love you because you are mine. That's the true self. See, Herod needed a richer war in his life, you know, practice a little mindfulness. You know, that would have gone a long way for him in his kingdom, probably. Uh, but he didn't. Uh, so the true self is a self that we're called to, I think, to live into. This, in this Christmas season, and why we can't wait for Christmas, because it reminds us that our identity is not based in what we do, but it's based in whose we are, and that Jesus is our Lord, and that we are his and that God instituted this new covenant through him so we can be claimed by him. As of my work as a high school pastor, I, I wrestle with this with our students, and it's so hard for our high school students and teenagers to, and I think even millennials, as James even, I think, pointed out a couple weeks ago in his beautiful sermon, it's hard for us to rest in that identity, hard for my students to rest in that identity of, of a secure identity outside of performance, because their literal success in life and their ability to move along depends on performance. And then that's not to say that academic achievement, um, scholastic ability, that's all good things. But when the whole system is based on just performance and you have to go high places in order to get places and get, 
get somewhere and be someone, you can see how our identity can shift away from that true self where God loves you no matter what onto I'm only loved if I do well, if I perform well, if I look a certain way and act a certain way. You know, and I think just the nature of the world, the world today, it's even shifting to our careers and, and for adults, you know. I'm only as good as what, I, what revenue I can bring in. You know, what have you done for me lately? You know, that kind of thing. Um, and, and so our relationship changes. A relationship change between adults and, and parents and teachers and students and coaches and players. And, and when that identity is shifted to that performance, that false self, we live into a performance and we live into transactional relationships uh, rather than the covenantal relationships that Jesus allows us to live into freely. The economy of covenantal relationships that Jesus gives us. And so we can sense that, that Herod is frightened uh, by this. And the other thing, too, to point out is where did the Magi come from? This is a small detail, but if you guys caught that, where the Magi came from? They came from the east. And if we're following along, if remember from their Nehemiah series, Nehemiah came from the east to rebuild Jerusalem. The east is, was a location of captivity. It was a location of captivity where the Babylonians had conquered Jerusalem and then had brought, in 586 B.C., and then had brought Israel, the Jewish people, back to Babylon to, uh, to use them for their empire. It's actually interesting, note, side note, is that they took all the very skilled people to the empire and left the poor in the land of Israel because they just wanted those who could really contribute to the society of Babylon. That's what they wanted. And so the east is that place of captivity, of bondage, and yet it's from that place of bondage and, and captivity, place of pain and scarring that Jesus, that we see good news coming. They're the first ones in the text to say, where's the king of the, this newborn king of the Jews? Isn't that powerful? We should never be surprised, by the way, who speaks truth. In this text, the truth that comes out is from Gentiles who know, so apparently know the text, the word, better than the Jerusalem elite do, who are schooled in this. And yet God's bringing this fresh new word, and what we see throughout the whole narrative of Matthew is that the kingdom of God is growing, and it's, the kingdom of God grows to include the Gentile nation to fulfill that promise that God made to Abraham that I will make you a great nation for all nations, for everybody. And so this is threatening, though, to, to King Herod that somebody from the east could be telling him about something going on in his kingdom. I mean, imagine if you're a CEO in a company and then you hear you're one of your uh, trading partners say their CEO came and said, hey, I heard there's a new uh, CEO elected by the board. You're like, what? What do you mean? How, what, something's going on under my nose. I better find the, found out at the bottom of this, right? Because it's not just namesake. It's like when there's another king or another CEO, there's a regime change. Right? There's a whole implication for what's going on. New policies, new economic uh, relationships. Right? Everything's about to change. We see this happen in college football, by the way. They call it the coaching uh, carousel. Right? Once a head coach gets fired, the whole staff goes. And so a new coach comes in, everything gets changed. Right? And um, I'm a college football fan, so it's this time of year that happens. And so we see that this causes a threat to Herod because there's maybe something under his nose that he has to find out. So Herod's troubled. So why, Herod, are you troubled? But then also, why Jerusalem are you troubled? Why would Jerusalem be troubled by the fact that a, their Savior, their Messiah, could be born? 
So wrestling with that. Why that? Well, you got to understand some of the relationship between Jerusalem and Herod. See, and, and who Herod is. So I studied uh, one year doing a gra- uh, graduate program in Israel, and I got to see a lot of what King Herod did. Uh, King Herod was a master builder. This guy built towers. He built palaces. He built a palace called Caesarea right on the coast. And at the beach, it was really cool because I could point it out at the beach service. But imagine like uh, if you're at our beach service and you're looking up the coast and then you see King's Harbor, right? Man-made harbor. This is what uh, Herod did to Caesarea, which is uh, on the town. He made this town on the city uh, something that was really an economic hub. He built a port where there was no port before. He imported the latest technology out of Rome, underground concrete. That was something for 4 BC, you know? Uh, Underground concrete. He imported from Rome to establish this set Caesar, by the way, he named after Caesar, this town. He made something amazing. Also, Masada. Has anyone been to Masada before? Oh my gosh, Masada is something to be held. Caesarea is one thing, but Masada, it's 1,000 feet up in the air in the Dead Sea area. There's nothing alive in the Dead Sea. Well, there is, but, you know, not really anything. Um, and he built this immaculate palace. So imagine you're Herod. You're always wanting to try to impress Rome because that's where your stability comes from, keeping an allegiance with Caesar. And now Caesar sends his delegation, like Mark Antony, out to see, hey, what's going on, uh, Herod? How are things going with you? And he's able to bring you to Masada, take you up a 1,000 feet in the air, and you look out, and there's literally nothing. And he's able to say, look at my palace. I mean, it's kind of like, imagine Terranea up 1,000 feet in the air with desert all around, you know? And then Herod brings you in to Terranea. It's like, whoa, look at this place, you know? And then what it was archaeologists found in their excavation of Masada, they found food from all over the world in these giant storehouses. He was able to move the economy in the way so that the best and choicest food showed up in really out of nowhere. It was almost like God himself bringing manna from heaven, right? Herod was able to do that. So if you're a Roman elite coming, traveling around, you're able to eat the food that you could only usually have back at the palace in Rome, and Herod was able to give it to you. Man, what a guy. That's my kind of guy, right? That's the kind of guy that gets things done, that makes things work, makes things happen. That's the kind of guy I like. So if you're, if you're in relationship with him, if you're one of the chief priests and your scribes, and you benefit from Herod in power, if there's a new king and somebody coming in who could take Herod's place, that could be a problem, right? That might not happen. You might not like that because he might change things. Maybe he doesn't like you so much. Maybe he wants to say, yeah, I don't really want to do this whole chief priest and scribes things, right? Maybe he says something like, I'm in the new temple. My body is the temple. Those kind of words that are dangerous words, right? That's the kind of stuff that the Messiah does. And eventually, what, actually what you see in Matthew 26, why Jesus ends up going to the cross. If you remember, I share this with you, that the, the Sanhedrin, or the, the Jewish council, the scribes, Pharisees were a part of, they try to bring false witnesses, it says, accounts to try to lie about Jesus, to try to get him to blasphemy charge, and then basically they can justify this injustice. And they, it, the text says it couldn't find anybody who could basically land a lie on him until they found two witnesses who said, we heard him say, I will destroy the temple, and in three days I will raise it. I find that detail so fascinating, Matthew 26, that it's not until Jesus says something about the temple and about the people who exist in the temple and benefit that, their whole livelihood is wrapped up in that, that that's the charge that gets them to the cross. 
That's the charge, the, the false lie that's able to justify the injustice of putting Jesus on the cross. That should show us the importance of this relationship between Jerusalem, the, the, the elite, the people in charge of Jerusalem temple, and Herod. The other thing to note here, too, is notice where the Messiah is to be born, right? We don't sing, oh, little town of Jerusalem, do we? Oh, little town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem's five miles away, right? But it has an interesting relationship with Jerusalem. Bethlehem is known as the house of bread, but it's more of like a blue-collar town. It's more of, it's, it's working hard, it's hard labor, it's a place of shepherds, which, by the way, shepherds weren't, like, really cute like the way we see kids dress up as shepherds. They're like, oh, it's so great. No, shepherds were dirty and disgusting and kind of like low-class people. And so if you're like somebody in, in Jerusalem who wants to make a name for yourself, you want to keep uh, moving up in the world, shepherd is not somebody you associate with. Bethlehem is not somewhere you want to be known. Uh, interesting, though, Herod did have a palace in Bethlehem. It was called the Herodian. It was known as his pleasure palace. And so he would off, often go there in the wintertime and be warmed and comforted there. And then he would come back to Jerusalem, you know, and, and handle his affairs. Um, and so Bethlehem was used to King Herod, um, but he was often tucked away in, in his walls, uh, in his palace. But Bethlehem is where the Savior is to be born. Uh, it's so fascinating to me that in this relationship where Bethlehem really is in service to Jerusalem, we got the Messiah born in Bethlehem, and so Jerusalem should be in service now to this king. But they can't see it. And isn't that interesting? Isn't that a truth of life that oftentimes where God shows up, we just don't expect that, and so we can't see it? We just expect God to show up this way, and so when God comes to the scene, like in a virgin, 16-year-old girl, to, and then shepherds celebrate them. We can't see God because it's not the way we think God works. It should cause us rather to react. It's a posture of listening, a posture of praying, a posture of, God, what are you up to in this world? How will you show yourself? That's what I love about the Christmas story, by the way, is that the Christmas story didn't happen just once. It tells itself over and over again, all throughout the world, all the time, and we get to bring our attention to it this Christmas. And so I think it, it, it alivens new questions of where is God showing up today? What place is God showing up in your life when maybe you're not expecting him to show up? It's interesting here that the scribes and the, and the chief priests don't respond, even though they know the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem, and these people from the east, these wise men who are, who are credible people, came and said, hey, a, a king's born, we, the star is there. They don't go. I'm like, what do you mean you don't go? Like, how do you not go? You got to go, right? I mean, it's right there in the Bible. You said the king's going to be born in, in Bethlehem, and you don't go? That's kind of like, oh, yeah, the party's over there, but we're just going to stay over here, you know? No, you go to the party. Go where the baby's at, you know? But they don't go. And I think, man, is that so true that God calls us somewhere? God calls us in a direction, but oftentimes we just don't think that's actually what's going to happen. I think that's the difference between like believing something or knowing something in our mind and actually believing it, faithing it. Act, the act, verb of like moving with what God is doing and seeing it come to fruition. And that's what the Christmas story is all about. It's a call to the Savior. So Jerusalem's troubled. Herod's troubled. What about Mary and Joseph and the wise people? Tommy, pointed out, Tommy uh, Olson pointed out a couple years ago, uh, that the wise 
the wise men or the magi, the Greek word there is it's neutered. It's not masculine or feminine. So maybe there was wise women in there too. So, I mean, there's a queen of Sheba in the Old Testament that came to Solomon. So I'm all for it. I like uh, wise women too. Uh, and Deborah was a, was a prophetess, you know, in, in, in Joshua. So that was good. Anyway, so as a random side note. Um, oh, yeah. The other thing I'll point out is uh, the tension that Jerusalem, I think, feels over this is a real tension... Uh, I think in, in my life even, and I think about something I love so much, like something that, that's been part of my story, something that's been part of uh, my world, and it's, it's how things move, um, but yet, I don't know, maybe something's going on there, and uh, it's, it, it's my relationship with football, my relationship with football. Uh, so I, I, was, I played football my whole life, my dad was a football coach at Oklahoma College, and uh, I mean, like, my whole world has been shaped through the lens of football. And now that I am a fa- father uh, with a son, and I'm learning, uh, doing research and studying, hearing stories from the scientific community about the brain damage to football, uh, and as well as seeing subtle ways the game is changing, I'm finding my own heart being like, oh, what am I going to do with this? And this is really hard. I love football. I celebrate it. Give a shout-out to my boy Ryan Wilson at PV High, football star over here. You know, it's like, you know, Julian Lessie, star right here, parents. I mean, it's like, man, I mean, like, amazing, amazing game. But it's like, man, when something is new, is changing, but I don't want it to change, what do you do with that tension? You know, what do you do with that reality? Now, and again, as a parent and my son, and, man, how do you work that out? And also, I think about the changing nature of football. I don't know how closely some of you follow the game of football, but it really feels like there's a football's entered into the, the death spin, the twilight zone of win at all cost. And it's like you literally can win the Pac-12 championship one year and the very next year not have a very good year, supposedly, and people are asking you to be fired. You know, or you might be doing a great work with the kids in your program, transforming their lives, helping them get an education, making them from boys to men, but all people look at is your record. And isn't the role of a coach to really help young people find through maturity, work through adversity and challenges in their life and able to grow up and develop as people? But yet it's like all that matters is about wins and losses. You know, and I was like, man, that's hard as a football fan, as a lover of football. That's hard to see my game that I love so much kind of turn into that. That these relationships between coach and player, which is supposed to be so good, turning into like a transactional relationship of it's just coach whatever I can get out of my player because I got to keep my job. I don't want to move my family every three years. And so these relationships turn in on itself. And see, that's the path, I think, of fear. And as your note says, it's the path of fear leads to destruction. When fear grips us of insecurity and instability, whether it's in the marketplace or in the political arena or in our careers or in our own families, the insecurity that grips us, it leads us and it turns in on itself. And so we end up using each other or abusing each other and hurting one another rather than choosing the path of peace, the path of life, the path of mutual security with one another. So Herod's troubled, Jerusalem is troubled. What do Mary and Joseph do and the, and the wise people? Open your text here. So now, what I want to point out is that Mary and Joseph and, and the wise people, wise men, they both experience, they experience trouble too. There was great risk for this newborn, little newborn baby. 
But here, look at, look at verse 13. This is after the Magi had left. By the way, the fact that the Magi didn't go back to Herod, that was a big no-no, too. Usually, would always go back to the king, tell him, hey, what's up, and then we're leaving. But they decided to secretly depart. This is a slap in the face to Herod. This is like, ooh, emperor, you don't have any clothes on. Gotcha. You know, kind of a deal. This is a big deal that he that shamed Herod this way. But they're willing to risk it because they knew the path of life that God called them to. And verse 13, what we see about Mary and Joseph, after the Magi had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So we see a couple of quick details here that I want to point out. One is uh, they get up and they flee at night. They flee at night. Night travel was risky, very risky. And going to a foreign place like Egypt, very risky. Even though there was a Jewish population living in Egypt at the time, maybe they could have found a connection and community, it was still a risky move. See, when, when we're threatened by things and we have to respond in ways because we can't control it, we can't control the chaos around us, and so we just have to go with it, we trust in God that he's going to do something. He's going to make a way out of no way, right? And so here's what happens, and that's what happens. They're willing to take risk. And haven't you found that true about your own life? When you feel God moving in your heart, and it's a risk, and you step out in that risk, and you obey faithfully, and God responds, you're like, oh, it was so worth it. I would do it a thousand times over again. And this is what faithfulness looks like. Even in the face of terror, they're willing to be obedient. I often wonder if, if Joseph lay in bed at night as a father being like, I didn't ask for this, God. I mean, I was just engaged. I was enjoying the engagement. You know, honeymoon, about to enjoy my honeymoon, and now I'm running, you know, on the run. Somebody's about to kill this kid. I didn't ask for this. But God's like, this is, who I, this is where I have you. Isn't that enough? To be in God's will, to be where God wants you to be, that is our quest. And so I'm struck by the fact that they respond in faithfulness, even in the face of terror. Even in the face of terror. And so we see then Herod, later in this in section, verse 16, he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, and so he ends up committing this great injustice. This great injustice. And Herod, in this moment, he's revealed his true character, who he really is. He's a king that's not divinely appointed. He's a king not like David. He's a king that has made, who is about himself, is about his own success, about his own kingdom, and not about a true purpose of a king, which is for his people. And so Herod commits this injustice. But what I want to leave you with is not a point of, uh, of worrisome, but a point of hope. Because here we see that in this injustice, we are called to lament. And this, we can open our eyes and see the multiple injustices in our world today. The millions of refugees, uh, Larry Olson just was telling me at the, after the beach service, 1.5 million Syrian refugees in Lebanon, where his daughter works for a nonprofit organization there. 1.5 million people in a country of 4 million. And that's just Syrian refugees, not alone the um, People all over the world, refugees trying to find peace. And we lament here with, with Rachel, a voice in Rama wailing a loud lamentation, Rachel, weeping for her children, she, she refused to be consoled because they are no more. 
But see, that's just what Matthew is helping us understand here. But he's also, what we don't see in this part, but what he's also implying is the whole text of, of Jeremiah 31. So if you have your Bible, turn to Jeremiah 31, and I want to end with this. Because this is what Christmas, I think, is all about. Is in the face of fear, we don't have to respond in that path that leads to destruction and death, but God gives us an opportunity to respond in the path of life and hope. So what's interesting is, so this is Jeremiah 31, verses 15 through, um, verse 15 is what Jeremiah, uh, Matthew quotes there in, in uh, Matthew chapter 2. But look at what, what the rest of the text is. In the very next verse, Jeremiah 31, 16, Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, says the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for the future, says the Lord. Your children shall come back to their own country. Did you guys get that? It, it goes in verse 15 that there are no more children, right? So we're declaring this lamentation about this injustice that there's no more children. But then the rest of the text in 31 and 16 says there shall be children. I don't even see what's going on here, but Matthew is saying there's this injustice that's happening. The nation of Israel has turned its away from God, but I am responding. And in, in 31, 31, he talks about the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. It won't be like the old day. I'm bringing out a new covenant. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Know the, they won't have to say, know the Lord, for they shall know me, Emmanuel. From the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. The new covenant. There was no more children, but guess what? There are children now. What are we known as? Children of God because of who? Because of Jesus. And as we go to the communion table, we break the bread, we drink of the cup, reminded of the death of Jesus, this child who can empathize, we can empathize with what is going on in our world today, the injustice of the world, but then in that injustice, we have the Messiah, the new hope we have, the path of life, that in him there are now millions and billions of children who claim him as their Lord. So we don't have to mourn. We don't have to mourn forever because there's hope in that. So this Christmas, in the face of fear, wherever you find yourself, know that you don't have to follow down that path. It's only the path of destruction. Follow the path of life, which leads to hope. Hope from our Messiah and hope for the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this path of life, this little baby, Jesus. Little sweet baby Jesus. Good old eight pounds, six ounce Jesus, who's able to offer us so much. And so we think about the innocence of that baby. We think about the great risk that Mary and Joseph took to protect him. Uh, their own lives at stake. God, to make sure that the work you are doing can continue. May we be compelled to keep our eyes on you, Lord. And as we continue about our work in our life, in our own small little kingdoms of our family, in our workplace, God, may we not be so consumed by our own legacy and our own efforts, what we accomplish. God, may we keep our eyes on you and what you're up to, what your kingdom is about. 
May we follow the path of life, which leads to hope, which leads to covenantal relationships and life for all, both Jew and Gentile. In Jesus' name, amen.